I felt that at any moment he was going to pull a knife or a gun or rob me, and my kids were right next to him. All I could think is, this isn't actually happening to us. This kind of stuff only happens in movies. The guy with the rifle shone his torch at the exact bench I'd been sitting on. Then the others, searching for me. Headphones recommended. Listener discretion advised. Welcome back in, everyone. I'm your host, Chad. You're just moments away from true tales of terror that will leave you breathless. So brace yourself. This is Disturbed. At the top of the show, I'd like to mention that I've made it easier than ever to submit your stories. So if you have a true, original experience that you want to share for the podcast, head over to disturbedpodcast.com submit and follow the guidelines. Now, I'm not sure about you guys, but where I'm at, it's bitterly cold. So let's heat things up a bit with a new set of horror stories. Our first experience has all the elements of a classic horror movie, and it's something Reddit user FuzzyFox41097 had to live through. Performing this experience is Addison Peacock. This is a completely true story, so sorry it's so long. When I was probably 13, my family and I were on our way home from a Wednesday night church service. My mom was in the driver's seat, and I was behind her in the back. My five-year-old brother was in the middle, and my ten-year-old sister on his other side. We were just down the road from the church, but it was a country road and late, so there was no light and no one else on the road. We were just coming up to our turn when, all of a sudden, a car comes swerving from our turning spot. This little car was taking the turn so fast that they came into our lane and almost hit us. We swerved as they tried to get in their own lane before we collided. Unfortunately for them, they overcorrected, and their car flipped and landed on the driver's side door in the ditch. My mom, of course, hits the brakes and immediately jumps out of the car to go help whoever was in there. She got about three steps away from our car and stopped dead in her tracks. My sister and I are sitting there with our mouths hanging wide open, having no clue what to do. All I could think is, this isn't actually happening to us. This kind of stuff only happens in movies. But why isn't my mom going to help the person? It was summer, so we had all our windows halfway down. I heard a person start yelling, help, from inside, and my mom starts moving again to help him. But for some reason, she stops again in the center of the road. Another car flies behind us, and the guy doesn't hesitate to jump out and run up to the crash to help. The man gets to the car and starts prying the passenger door open so the guy can get out. I can see my mom wants to run and help, but it's like she can't move from her spot. 
The good Samaritan that pulled up behind us is able to get the door popped open. The guy from inside crawls out the door and gets into a frog-like crouching position on top of the car. At this point, my mom starts taking shuffle steps back to the car. When I look back at the guy, he has this crazy look on his face. He looks directly at our car and my mom and launches himself off the top of the car and hits the guy who was helping him. He starts running for our car at the same time my mom turns and runs for our car. He must have knew he couldn't get there before my mom did because he changed directions and moves to the car behind us. My mom jumps in and locks our doors just as the guy jumps in the empty driver's seat of the car behind us. He slams on the gas before he even closed the door and almost hits us, taking off a second time. Next thing we know, the guy who was just carjacked runs up to my mom's window and starts screaming and knocking on the window. My mom is, of course, shaken and doesn't want to roll down the window, so she settles for cracking it so we can understand what he's saying. He's yelling, asking us to call 911 because his phone was in the car along with his girlfriend. So, of course, my mom starts searching for her phone to call, but because she's so frantic from what just happened, she can't seem to find it. So I take a break from keeping my little brother and sister calm and dial 911 on my phone and hand it to her. While she's explaining what happened to the 911 operator, we hear a woman scream down the road. The man that was at our window takes off running and a few minutes later comes back with a severely scraped up woman in his arms that turned out to be his girlfriend. My mom unlocks the doors at this point and he sets her in the passenger seat while we wait for the cops. The girlfriend told us that he noticed her while he was speeding off and tried to hit her but she scratched and punched at him and while trying to plead with him to stop the car. He kept coming at her, though, and finally rolled down the window and pushed her out, going about 60. The cops finally show up and talk to all of us to get our stories. While talking to one officer, he told my mom that the man had shot and killed a man behind some apartment complex. That's why he was driving so fast and trying to get away. When we finally got home, we were all told to go to bed, but of course, I wouldn't be able to sleep that night. So I went downstairs to talk to my mom. I worked up the courage to ask her why she stopped running to the car when the other guy didn't. She told me she had such a strong feeling that she should stay in the car with us that it was almost like she could hear it. When she heard him start yelling for help, she ran to help again, but just like last time, she got the overwhelming feeling not to go to the car. To this day, I wonder what would have happened if my mom hadn't listened to that feeling. The man could have easily overpowered her and gotten to the car if she had been any further away. I should also mention the man was caught that night trying to steal a new car. He had already ditched the car he stole from behind us, so the thing that really helped him get convicted was that when the woman was fighting him off, she grabbed the wrap off his head before falling out. She didn't know she did till the police got there and found it by where she was pushed. He did go to jail, but I was never informed of how long or anything else. And honestly, I never cared to ask. As always, much love to our newest Patreon members, Lena Sanchez, Chelsea, and Cheryl Morris. Your support directly contributes to a higher quality show, and anyone can contribute. So become part of the podcast. Unlock bonus episodes, ad-free listening, and even claim your disturbed hoodie. 
just head over to disturbedpodcast.com slash support to get your exclusive access and bonus material today. Next up, a story from Reddit user SOS The Trouble Is that's so specifically bizarre that you may not want to listen alone. Performing this experience is Tom Aglio. Basically, it all started in March 2020 when I was furloughed from my job in the beginning days of the coronavirus. I had a lot of excess time on my hands and spent a good majority of it surfing sites like Web Sleuths and Charlie's Project, as well as joining various Facebook groups and subreddits dedicated to the subject. I had always been semi-interested in reading about missing persons cases, but I started taking it to a whole other level during quarantine. That's when I first heard about the Springfield 3. For those of you not familiar, on June 7, 1992, 18-year-old Stacy McCall, 19-year-old Susie Streeter, and Susie's 47-year-old mom, Cheryl Levitt, disappeared from Susie and Cheryl's house in Springfield, Missouri, on the night of the girls' graduation. Their purses and cars were left behind, and aside from a broken porch dome light, there was no evidence as to where they went or what happened to them. It is an absolute mystery in every sense of the word. It's like they just vanished off the planet. As soon as I read about the case, I became hooked. Obsessed would probably be a better word, actually. I went down the rabbit hole, reading and watching everything I could about the case. It was something that was always on my mind, and it really just started to consume me. In early June, I had a friend over to my house, and I ended up telling them about the case. They seemed rather intrigued and suggested that we try to contact the girls and see if we get a response. My friend is very spiritual and into all things pertaining to ghosts and the other side. And even though I myself was not, I agreed because why not? So they ran home and grabbed their Ouija board and we proceeded asking questions. I'm absolutely certain this is what caused all of this. We started off by saying we were specifically trying to communicate with the women, saying their names and nobody else and if they could hear us to please let us know. At the time, I was totally convinced my friend was messing with me and moving the little handpiece, whatever you call it, but they insisted they weren't. We asked who it was we were speaking to, and the response we got was, Suze. My friend then asked what happened to them that night, and we got, Take. I asked where their remains are, and got marked. Nothing legible after that, so we stopped. Starting that night, I began having the most vivid dreams I ever had in my life. And in all of them was Susie Streeter. It was every night. The setting of the dreams would change, but she was always in them. In many of them, she would try to talk to me, but she couldn't get the words out. It frustrated her, so she tried shouting, but nothing audible came out. I could hear her cry, though, and she cried a lot. I could sense her emotion like I was absorbing it. An utter sense of betrayal, abandonment, loneliness, it was awful. I had these dreams like clockwork until August 25th, and that's when shit got real. I will remember that day for the rest of my fucking life. I was in my room on my phone, and all of a sudden I heard the crying I heard in my dreams, except it was here in my room while I was awake. It sounded close, but otherworldly at the same time. I really don't know how to explain it. All the hairs on my arms and legs stood straight up. I don't know if this was because I was freaked out or if it was a reaction to her presence. Then suddenly, without me saying anything, Alexa started playing the song Love My Way by the Psychedelic Furs. This has essentially been my life every day. Every night I dream of her, and at least once or twice a week, 
She makes herself known in my waking life. It only happens in my room and always starts with either something falling or moving, the sound of crying, or Alexa playing the song Love My Way. It's always that song. It just starts playing. It's becoming more than I can handle. I'm a wreck. I feel helpless like she needs my help, but I'm helpless. But it's scary too. It's traumatizing. You can't begin to understand what this kind of stuff does to a person. Am I crazy? I I don't think so. I rigged up a camera in my room that's focused on my Echo Dot to see if I could get footage of the thing playing by itself, and last night I finally got it. It happened while I was outside with the dogs. I desperately need some advice. Part of me wants it all to end and for her just to leave, but on the other hand, I feel I've grown a connection with her and would love to help her if I can. I just wish I wasn't so afraid of her when it happens. What can I do to help her find peace? Leave us your thoughts about the podcast and get your voice heard on the show. Just hit up our hotline, 701-354-3667, or leave us a message online at disturbedpodcast.com. Now our next experience has to be a major fear for any parent. Coming from Reddit user Spooky Red, we hear what can go wrong in an empty parking lot. Performing this experience is Sarah Thomas. So this happened about five years ago, while I was nine months pregnant. I was Christmas shopping at the mall with my then seven and 15 year old daughters one Saturday night in a very safe city with very low crime rate. There was an Applebee's connected to the mall, and we ended our shopping pretty late, and the mall stores were starting to close. So I took my kids to the connected Applebee's for a late dinner. We finished up eating about 10 p.m. and leave out of the Applebee's entrance into the practically deserted parking lot with shopping bags in tow. As we got to the car, I was in the middle of maneuvering the shopping bags on my arms to find my keys when a 50-ish year old crusty looking guy starts walking up from somewhere in the parking lot with shaggy gray hair and a faded flannel shirt and old jeans. I noticed him briskly approaching and when he was about 40 feet away, he said, this is a stick up, give me all your money. My blood ran cold. And I stared at him, owlishly and shakingly said, What? He then said he was just kidding and came up and stood right next to my daughters who were standing on the other side of the car waiting for me to unlock the car to let them in. He then starts making small talk with me and my girls. He's asking things like if they were being good girls for Santa, how old they were, if we got all of our Christmas shopping done, what kind of things did we get, etc. He didn't seem drunk, high, slow, or mentally challenged at all. He was very coherent and seemed of sound mind. Mind you, I was a heavily pregnant woman, alone with my two daughters in a mostly deserted parking lot at 10 o'clock at night who was being approached by a stranger who came and stood right next to my kids on the other side of the car, just shooting the breeze, 
talking to me and my kids with his hands in his pocket and occasionally looking over his shoulder. I didn't want to aggravate him, so I was politely conversing with him and trying to look calm and nonchalant while trying to disguise my frantic hands digging inside my giant purse for my car keys. This exchange went on for a couple of minutes while he periodically kept looking over his shoulder. I was slightly panicking and trying to politely keep the situation from escalating and calmly and nonchalantly talking to him while also trying to find my damned car keys to get us out of there. They were in there hiding good. I felt that at any moment he was going to pull a knife or a gun or rob me, and my kids were right next to him, away from their mother on the other side of the car, and I couldn't find my fucking car keys to get my kids into the safety of the car. He kept trying to engage them in conversation, and I could see that my oldest daughter was a little weirded out, and she kept glancing at me to gauge my assessment and reaction to the situation. Kids often tend to recognize potential danger when they are with their parents, since they see us as their protectors. And being that he was only talking and acting friendly, and I was doing my best to stay calm, they were oblivious to the alarming situation we all were in. And being nine months pregnant, and that I was no match for this full-grown man, especially if he was hiding a weapon on him. While still desperately digging for my keys, I tried to politely give him hints that the conversation was over by saying things like, it was nice chatting with you, but I gotta get these kids to bed, and it was nice meeting you, and telling my girls to say that it was nice meeting him too. My polite attempts to get this guy to leave weren't working because he kept sidestepping my attempts and asking them what their favorite school subjects were and how nice young ladies they were, etc. While I was struggling with the shopping bags and digging in my giant, cluttered purse for my car keys. My outgoing seven-year-old was completely oblivious to how not okay this situation was, because he was being friendly, and because of the whole I'm with mommy so I'm safe child mentality. So, she started to talk to him about what she picked out for daddy for Christmas, and started enthusiastically talking about kid stuff and asking him if he knew what Minecraft was, etc., and keeping this creep from leaving us alone by keeping him engaged in conversation. They didn't realize that I was becoming desperate to get them the hell out of there. Then, I suddenly felt this sinking feeling of dread, when I realized that I may have lost my keys in the mall and that we were stuck outside with this strange man who kept looking over his shoulder and was showing no signs of walking away. And I was thinking that he was waiting for the perfect moment to pounce. All he had to do was grab one of my girls and threaten their life, knowing it would make me do whatever he wanted as long as he wouldn't hurt them. I felt my adrenaline start to spike and my heart and stomach started doing flip-flops, and I felt like at any moment shit was going to go down as the gravity of realizing that there were no other people or witnesses around and that we were totally alone with him. And at that moment, the odds were stacked against us and that he had his chance. Then, he all of a sudden said, "'Okay, it was nice talking with you. See you later.'" and walked off in the same direction from which he'd come. 
it wasn't until then I found my car keys and unlocked the car and told my kids to get in fast. I got in too and locked the doors and started the car and drove the hell out of there. My 15-year-old lightheartedly and jokingly said, okay, that was weird, and laughed. I was overwhelmed with relief. And then I was confused over what had just happened. I thought to myself, why the hell would a guy of seemingly sound mind think it was totally acceptable to go out of his way just to approach a woman and her kids in a deserted parking lot late at night just to chit-chat? But being that nothing bad happened, I brushed it off and joked about it too. When we got home, my husband greeted us and asked us how the shopping went. I said it went well, and my 15-year-old told him what happened in the parking lot and how weird it was and was kind of joking about it. I started joking about it too, saying how I was mentally having a panic attack while trying to look calm. And I started making fun of myself by telling my husband how I was attempting to inconspicuously rummage through my purse to find my car keys. My husband went completely white, and I acknowledged his horrified look of alarm, and I assured him that, albeit creepy, the guy was just talking and eventually left on his home. Now, my father-in-law is a retired sheriff deputy, and my husband went through the police academy training after graduating high school. He decided to go to business school instead of becoming a cop. And with the knowledge he gained from that, plus growing up with a cop for a dad, I found out why my husband looked absolutely horrified when I told him the details. What my husband told me completely rattled me to the bone. My husband told me that he was 100% sure that the reason why the guy was hanging around us and chit-chatting was because he was waiting for me to unlock my car. And the reason why he was standing next to our kids was because once I unlocked the car and the kids started to get inside, he was most likely going to force himself into the car with the kids and hold a knife or gun to them to gain leverage on me to force me to cooperate, knowing that I wouldn't abandon my kids. This would force me to get into the car with them and do whatever he wanted me to, which most likely would be to drive to a remote location to do God knows what. And since he wasn't wearing a mask, that suggested that his intentions were to leave no witnesses to identify him. I remembered that he was positioned by the backseat passenger door, where my seven-year-old was standing by waiting to get in. My husband told me that the most likely reason why the guy ended up leaving was because it took so long for me to find my keys, and the longer it took, the more anxious and spooked it made him. And that whole time, I was desperate to find my car keys, which, through some sort of divine intervention, stayed hidden in my purse, thus saving us from potentially being abducted. Thanks to Roan for helping make this episode possible. Roan is clothing that inspires men to live healthy, strong, and free. Building best-in-class products is no easy task. In fact, it's a grueling process of trial, error, and at times, unexpected success. Roan worked tirelessly to ensure the products you order exceed expectations. 
Roan is clothing made for men, for everything from the gym to the office. Disturbed is teaming up with Roan and Podgo to bring our listeners this exclusive offer. 25% off a pack of three Roan polo shirts by going to podgo.co slash Roan. That's podgo.co slash R-H-O-N-E for 25% off a pack of three polos. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. And hi, Hi, True Crime Crime fans. fans. We're the co-hosts of She Goes by Jane. Every week, we'll be covering the story of a missing or unidentified woman in the United States. Stories you may have heard before. And ones whose stories didn't make it into the news. We've been covering these stories for a while, first in Amy's book of poetry, Doe, and then in Vanessa's documentary, She. But now we want to share them with you here on She Goes by Jane. And each week we'll be joined by a special guest who will read a poem in honor of the women we talk about. Can we say who? We can say who. We'll be joined by actresses like Coco Jones and Gabrielle Ruiz. And musicians like Stephanie Quayle and Kelly Moneymaker along with authors like Louise Penny and Catherine McKenzie. So check out She Goes by Jane wherever you get your podcasts or check out Evergreen Podcasts and their true crime channel, Killer Podcasts. We can't wait to bring you these stories. 24 hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series... And that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Do you enjoy science, spooky stories, and all things paranormal? We do too. While we would love for most paranormal stories to be true, we are here to tell you that they probably aren't. But that doesn't make them any less fun to speculate about. We are the Spooky Science Sisters podcast. In this podcast, we bring you bi-weekly discussions on possible scientific explanations behind the supernatural. Backed up by research articles and other credible sources, we do deep dives into things like archaeology and physics and share in-depth discussions with topic experts. Visit us at SpookySciencesisters.com to listen to a couple of skeptics debunk some of your favorite alien encounters, cryptid sightings, and ghost stories with science, sass, and a significant amount of laughter. Thank you, and stay spooky. Now back to the show. And finally, our title story coming from Reddit user Bubble085. Prepare to be hunted like an animal. Performing this experience is Matt Bradford... This happened to me a couple of months ago now, but when it first happened, 
Given how crazy it was, it took me a few weeks to collect myself enough to type it up and post it. It's relevant for me to tell you up front that I'm a military veteran and I have PTSD and anxiety, as well as a pretty bad case of depression that I'm currently in my third year of. I've read that CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, can massively improve PTSD symptoms and in turn help to reduce anxiety, so I've been trying various techniques at home. Now, the problem there is, my wife and I live in a small two-bedroom ground floor flat with an upstairs neighbor with absolutely no concept of other people. He is a jock douchebag type who's a personal trainer, but he trains at home too, cause gains. You know, the kind of guy whose only two topics of conversation are protein powder and steamed rice. I'm sure you can imagine the type. Anyway, with that being a constant issue, meditation and quiet mindfulness are just not possible with a constant noise. My solution to this was to do my normal routine during the day, but take advantage of my insomnia later on. At around 2300 hours or midnight, I would put on my coat and my shoes and as we lived near the beach, I figured I could walk to the beach now that there's pretty much no people around, walk on the sand, and be mindful to the sounds of the ocean. Sounds nice, doesn't it? And it was the first two times, but you know what they say. The third time's the charm. The walk to the beach from my home isn't that far, maybe a little over half a mile, but once I got there, I would walk to the very end of the beach until you reach the cliffs where there's a World War II artillery gun turret, which is another half mile-ish. Sometimes I would walk the path up the cliff to the gun and stare out into the blackness of the midnight ocean, which was only broken by the occasional flash of light from the lighthouse. I would sit and listen to the waves crashing against the cliffs. Sometimes I would close my eyes and just concentrate on nothing but that sound. I felt safe there, knowing I was alone. Just me and the ocean. Usually, before I turn and head home, I would walk down a small row of benches. They're all marked with plaques in remembrance of someone who also came and enjoyed the view, although I imagine they came during the day. Now, the benches are close to an old pub that was shut down years ago, and I had heard the place used to get used as a dogging site or a brothel or something back in the day. So, when I saw vehicle headlights coming towards the pub, I figured it was some young lads trying to catch potential doggers at it. I sat on the bench and waited for the car to pass me, but as it rounded a bend in the road further up, I was momentarily lit up by the headlamps. The headlights of the vehicle went off immediately, and the car went off-road and out of sight for a moment. At this point, I was fully alert and a bit cautious, so I dropped to one knee and ducked behind the bench I'd been sitting on. The vehicle drove past me. It was only maybe 40 feet from me, and as the lighthouse illuminated it, I could now see it was an old beat-up Land Rover kind of vehicle, with shitty camo paint on the wings. At that moment, someone popped out of the top of the vehicle with a scope rifle and a big torch. In that instant, in my head I was back in a rack and my senses felt razor sharp. I dropped onto my belt buckle and crawled into a patch of long grass adjacent to the benches. Then I got into a position where I could see them but they couldn't see me. The guy with the rifle shone his torch at the exact bench I'd been sitting on. Then the others, searching for me. He started looking all around him through the scope, looking for where I might have gone. My heart was pounding so hard I felt as if they could hear it. I held my sleeve over my mouth to muffle the sound of my breathing, but more importantly to try to hide the condensation of my breath. 
The vehicle started to move to get a better view of the benches, so I started slowly crawling towards the main road, as not only is there a row of houses, but an old stone bus stop I could take hard cover in if they saw me and opened fire. After about five minutes of hiding in the long grass, it started to rain, and they were still clearly looking for me, but were now about 150 feet away. The guy with the rifle was scanning around with his eye down the scope, so I waited till he was looking away from me to seize my moment and run for cover. I pushed my hands hard into the wet dirt to launch myself onto my feet. Then I sprinted towards the bus stop while throwing some zigs and zags in there just in case they had seen me. Luckily, they hadn't. I was now far enough away that I could take out my phone and call the police. They were there with a riot van and a squad car in about 10 minutes. And as I was talking to the officers in the van, they spotted the gunner's vehicle and took off after him. The officers in the squad car stayed behind to talk to me. The rain was coming down in sheets by now. They asked me if I was absolutely sure it was a rifle, and I told them yes, it was 100%, no doubt in my mind at all. The officers both looked at each other and then one of them asked, and what exactly is your experience with firearms? I told them I was ex-army and have seen my fair share of all kinds of firearms. Then they asked me what I was doing there after midnight, which is a pretty fair question to be honest. I explained that, quite ironically, I was taking a mindfulness walk to ease my PTSD symptoms. They were satisfied with that explanation, if not somewhat amused, and told me the armed response unit was en route. I asked if they needed me to stay behind and make a statement, but the officer told me not to bother waiting around because they most likely wouldn't need to take a statement beyond the call I made, and also it was pissing down with rain so I should get home and get dry. It was over, but I still felt super wired and my heart was still thumping hard in my chest. I started the walk home, and when I was about halfway there, a police helicopter buzzed overhead and settled over the area where I had been sitting on the benches, with the searchlight going. It was right then it hit me, like a shotgun to the chest. That happened. That was fucking real, and it was here. What the fuck? My head started swimming, my heart was pounding twice as hard now, and my legs felt like jelly. My lungs felt glitchy, I couldn't breathe properly. I dropped to my knees, crying in the street in the pouring rain, the only light coming from a nearby street lamp with a flickering bulb. I was gasping for breath, thoughts flashing in my head, thinking that, that if I'd stayed still, if, if I hadn't hunched behind the bench, if, if I'd done any number of things differently or hadn't, then I could have gurgled my last breath alone, in the dark, in the cold, wet dirt, and my wife would be none the wiser till the following day. I have no idea if they were even there for me. And if they were, how could they know I'd be there? I'd been twice before, I suppose. It's not like there's animals to hunt there beyond foxes. But why hunt foxes from a vehicle with a rifle and a torch at midnight? Anyway, I'm not ashamed to say that the experience terrified me. I guess my army training helped me stay alert and to stay hidden, but I don't really know. I don't go walking at night anymore, and I have the occasional nightmare about the whole thing. So that guy with the rifle. Let's not meet. Support the show to become part of the podcast and get access to bonus episodes, ad-free listening, and much more. Visit disturbedpodcast.com support to get your access today. Follow our social accounts, Facebook and Instagram at Disturbed Podcast. 
and Twitter at Disturbed underscore pod. Disturbed is a Disturbed Media original podcast. Musical score by White Bat Audio, Co.ag, and Kevin Hartnell. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Thursday with a brand new episode. And stay safe out there, y'all.